Welcome to the AJHP podcast series. The American Journal of Health System Pharmacy is the official journal of the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, an association of pharmacists committed to helping patients make the best use of medications. For more information about AJHP, please visit www.ajhp.org. Hi, this is Pamela Shea, Assistant Editor at the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy, and I have here with me today Jeremy Hampton, the author of an upcoming article entitled Rapid Sequence Intubation and the Role of the Emergency Department Pharmacist. Jeremy is a clinical specialist in emergency medicine at Truman Medical Center and clinical assistant professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Pharmacy in Kansas City, Missouri. Hello, Jeremy. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your background in the emergency department and how long you've been involved in rapid sequence intubation? Sure. Uh, Like I mentioned, I'm a clinical assistant professor at University of Missouri, Kansas City, and I actually graduated from UMKC in 2007. Uh, Right after I graduated, I went to Duke University for my pharmacy practice residency, and I was able to focus a lot of that residency in the emergency department. So I had a a lot of early exposure to the ED and uh, realized that that was a place that I really wanted to practice. After I completed residency, we moved back to Kansas City and was able to secure the position here at uh, UMKC and Truman Medical Centers. So I've been practicing in the emergency department since the summer uh, of 2008. And essentially from the beginning, I was able to get involved with rapid sequence innovations. So over the past three years, I've had a pretty heavy focus in that and be able to be involved with uh, the vast majority of of cases that we have in the emergency department downstairs. What kind of questions do you get from other practitioners as the pharmacist on the team? I think the biggest one is uh, what are we going to use in what circumstance? vast majority of patients that come through that require innovation are either going to be completely unstable. Um, They're not going to be your nice packaged patients that are, you know, hemodynamically stable, nothing else wrong with them. They just need to be innovated for a procedure or something. Uh, so with that, there's a lot of different drug selection problems that can arise. So you have a seizing patient, you're going to use one agent versus if you have a hypotensive patient. It's kind of nice because they turn to me quite a bit down there to kind of run the selection, the dosing. Uh, you know, your dosing is going to be different based on body habitus. Uh, and then the post-innovation management, too, there's a lot of questions that arise in terms of how to best manage that patient in the post-innovation period, too. It's relatively common for the practitioner to leave the room after the patient's innovated and then leave the post-care to myself and to the nursing staff to make sure the patient's maintained and stays pretty sedated until they make it up to the ICU. So when you first start and you're assessing the patient, how do you decide whether or not a patient would benefit from pretreatment? Pre-treatment, there are a few uh, different resources that you can use to look at if the patient needs to be uh, pre-treated. And the whole purpose of the pre-treatment, which I mentioned in the article, is to uh, help decrease that sympathetic response when you intubate a patient. Uh, With an intubation, you're dropping a plastic tube down someone's throat, which is going to cause the patient to have a big sympathetic release. Their blood pressure is going to increase and their heart rate is going to increase. So if we can identify a subset of patients that this would have a detrimental outcome on, it's going to help guide us to where to decide if they need to be pretreated or not. The one uh, approach you can use is the tight head, tight heart, tight lungs, and tight vessels approach, where a tight head you could think of as being a patient with an increased intracranial pressure. 
if they have already increased ICP, then a further increase would be detrimental. So they would be potentially a candidate for uh, lidocaine pretreatment. Uh, tight heart would be uh, if the patient has like an ischemic heart disease, you know, any kind of structural heart disease, and they potentially have a detrimental outcome with an increase in blood pressure. This could guide you to use fentanyl as a pretreatment agent to help mitigate that sympathetic release. Tight vessels would be the patients with uh, like an aortic dissection or uh, any type of aneurysmal disease who would be at risk of rupture or dissection if the pressure on the vascular wall and the vessel wall would increase too much. So again, fentanyl would be ideal in this situation. And the patients with tight lungs, uh, this, you could think of this as like bronchospastic type disease where lidocaine may be indicated as a pretreatment agent. So if you can break it down to tight head, tight heart, tight lungs, and tight vessels, it really makes the pretreatment selection process a lot easier. It seems like you have to deal with these as they come in and figure out what it is that you need to do. Yeah, absolutely. Every patient's going to present a little bit differently. And that's one of the benefits of having a pharmacist in the room is we're able to kind of stand back and assess the patient a little bit more critically while the physician's getting ready to intubate and while the nurses are documenting and getting all IV access. Uh, I'm able to kind of step back and just look at the patient overall and then help guide the, the medication therapy from that point. I'm sure there's a lot of special populations that you have to deal with. For example, what kind of considerations would you have to be concerned with if you're dosing, for example, in the elderly? And elderly patients, we have to be a little bit more careful. They're um, a little bit more susceptible to the adverse effects of a lot of the sedative agents that we use. There's some data to show that in agents like propofol or midazolam, that it takes 50% less of a dose to elicit the same effect that you would see in a younger patient, and the effects being either positive or negative. So the general approach to the elderly patient, if we are going to use midazolam as an induction agent, or if we're going to use, say, thiopental or propofol, would be to reduce the dose by 40%. And this is going to help decrease that incidence of adverse effects, namely hypotension in those patients. One thing to consider with this, though, it's going to take a little bit longer to see that effect. It's going to take a little bit longer to reach an adequate sedation level in those patients to where they'll be uh, optimized for innovation. Are there other special populations that you kind of keep an eye out for? We'll really watch out for um, patients who are alcohol dependent or another complicated patient demographic. Uh, with that, they already have a higher baseline level of uh, GABA stimulation. So if we're going to use propofol or midazolam in those patients, it typically takes a lot higher dose to see an effect in those patients, uh, which can be really problematic for quickly trying to innovate the patient and uh, even for the post-innovation management. Two of our most commonly used post-innovation sedation agents are propofol and midazolam. So with those, it often takes a lot larger dose than we're typically accustomed to giving. So they can be make for a fairly complicated patient case with an innovation. So along those lines, how do you recommend approaching the patient with status epilepticus? If a patient presents in status epilepticus, this can be a little bit more complicated. Uh, so status epilepticus, they've been seizing for a prolonged period. We need to get them sedated as quickly as possible, ideally terminate that seizure activity so they don't present that increased risk of uh, anoxic brain injury. Our gold standard for sedation and, uh, and induction for rapid sequence innovation is automidate. Um, the interesting thing about automidate is that it can actually lower focal seizure threshold and relative to other uh, induction agents, it's actually been shown to increase EEG activity. 
And so it's not absolutely contraindicated in patients with status epilepticus, but there are absolutely better agents that we could use in that patient population. Propofol and midazolam have both been shown to uh, reduce that EEG activity and help terminate seizures. So if we have a patient that presents in status epilepticus and they're hemodynamically stable, which will be important, it'd be recommended to use an agent other than Atomidate, so either propofol or midazolam for induction. If they're hemodynamically unstable, then we'd probably still turn to Atomidate. got pretty neutral cardiovascular effect, so it's not going to drop their blood pressure when we give it. So in a risk-benefit analysis, that hemodynamic stability would probably outweigh a theoretical uh, increase or a potential increase in EEG activity in that seizing patient. In the situation where a first attempt at intubation fails, how do you approach a second round of medication administration? Whenever this happens, this is an extremely complicated scenario that arises. Typically, when we intubate a patient, we're going to use succinylcholine and atomidate as our first-line agents. Both of those agents, it's actually not recommended to repeat doses with that. With Atomidate, even after a single dose, it's been shown to uh, induce adrenal suppression for a short period of time. Uh, so it's not recommended to repeat a dose of Atomidate. With succinylcholine, repeat doses of succinylcholine have been shown to increase the risk of uh, bradycardia in these patients due to the mechanism of action. So with either of these, if we have a failed attempt on the first if we fail on the first attempt, we'll typically call anesthesia to come down uh, first and foremost. If we failed on the first time, uh, it's likely that this is a difficult intubation. The patient has a, has a difficult airway. Uh, with those difficult airways, the more attempts that it takes, the larger the risk of negative outcome in the long term. Uh, so we want to make sure that we have anesthesia on board to take over if needed. So as soon as they get down there, you know, we'll reassess the patient. And then our next option would likely be to give rocuronium as our paralytic agent. And potentially, depending on their hemodynamic status, we could give either midazolam, uh, potentially give propofol. And then ketamine is still an option that we can look at for uh, sedative induction in these patients, too. Uh, the big consideration with rocuronium is that it's going to have a duration of action on average around 45 minutes. So if we've already had a failed attempt on the first attempt, there's going to be a decent likelihood that there can be a second failure uh, on the second attempt. So in that event, if there is a second uh, failed intubation and they've just been paralyzed with rocuronium, we have to have contingency plans in place uh, in that event. So either we're going to be bagging the patient for the duration of the paralysis until that wears off and they can ideally resume spontaneous respirations on their own, uh, or we're going to have to acquire a surgical airway, whether we have to get surgery on board, perform an emergency cricothyrotomy, or whether the emergency medicine practitioner will perform that procedure. Uh, but we have to have everything in place there for that contingency. So if we have that first failed attempt, uh, we'll get anesthesia on board, and then we'll likely use either rocuronium for our paralysis and either propofol, midazolam, or ketamine for that induction agent. We just want to avoid the repeat doses of uh, succinylcholine and atomidate. A lot of the drugs that you've mentioned in your paper have also been involved in discussions on drug shortages. How have drug shortages affected the practice of rapid sequence intubation? At the end of last year, it had an enormous uh, impact on practice. As you may know, succinylcholine was on national shortage, national back order last year for reasons that I'm not completely sure of. Uh, but basically, I came into work one day and had a phone call from my buyer, from our pharmacy buyer, that said that succinylcholine was on shortage, 10, 20 vials left in the hospital. Well, between the emergency department and the surgery department, I mean, we use a fair amount of succinylcholine each day. So what we had left was only going to last a couple more days. 
this sudden onset of the shortage at our institution, man, we had to execute um, alternative plans immediately. The next best option in the absence of succinyl choline is to use rocky uronium for paralysis. At our particular institution, our rapid sequence innovation kits only have succinyl choline as the paralytic agent in there. So by taking that out and adding a new one, it required a large amount of education. It required implementation of new protocols. It required serious discussions and cross-disciplinary discussions from pharmacy to medicine to nursing, from emergency medicine to surgery to the ICUs. So everyone had to be on board quickly to get this implemented. So one thing the shortages have taught us is definitely how to work on our feet and think on our feet and get things implemented more quickly. But at the same time, it's definitely not convenient, especially when it comes to patient safety. The vast majority of our practitioners are used to using one agent, and then we throw a newer agent that uh, they have little experience with. And in an emergent situation, there's going to be an increased risk of uh, patient harm that can result as a part of that. That's another benefit of having the pharmacist in the emergency department is that we can help ease that transition and help maintain that level of patient safety. Uh, when these shortages do arise and we have to execute these new plans of action. Have you had trouble with propofol either? That's one that always seems to come up at the top of drug shortages list, or have you been okay at your institution? You know, we've been really lucky here. Uh, We haven't been affected by the propofol shortage. I think there was a period of maybe two weeks where we uh, were limited to the 20 mil vial size versus the 100 mil, which we typically use for post-innovation sedation. I have talked to colleagues, too, that have been dramatically affected by the propofol shortage where, you know, they that's basically all they would use for post-innovation sedation and then their stock completely dried up. So it hit them a little hard, but I was pretty lucky here in that uh, we always had a pretty decent uh, side supply of propofol. That is pretty lucky. Thank you so much for your time. This is Pamela Shea with the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy, and I've been talking to Jeremy Hampton, the author of a paper entitled Rapid Sequence Intubation and the Role of the Emergency Department Pharmacist that will be appearing in the July 15, 2011 issue of AJHP. Thank you so much. Thank you. That concludes this podcast. For more information, please visit www.ajhp.org.